What's going on, everybody? Josh Coker here from Polymathics, the podcast that helps you become a modern-day renaissance man or woman. And in this episode, we're going to talk about commercial fiction. Specifically, we're going to talk about how to write characters the right way. And yes, there is a right way and there is a wrong way. For example, how many times have you gone into the theater, watched TV at home, or picked up a book, and within the first 15 minutes, you're just bored? And you can't really put your, your, your finger on it, but you know it's something. Nine times out of ten, it's because the characters are cliche, they're falling flat, or they're just not grabbing your attention. You cannot empathize with them. And this is a problem that a lot of aspiring authors have, but also professional writers as well. So in today's episode, we're going to dig deep and talk about how to avoid the pitfalls and the really the one true way to get the audience's attention through your characters and keep them caring about those characters. So again, if you're a, you know, any type of fiction writer, I would say this is going to be a super helpful podcast, whether, you know, it, you write short stories, novellas, novels, screenplays, maybe even poetry or music. This is a must listen to episode. All right. So let's get down to it. How to write fictional characters the right way. And I know that's a pretty bold statement, but it's true. There are a lot of wrong ways, but there's only one real right way to do it. Okay. Here's the problem, as I alluded to before. Many fictional characters come off flat or quote unquote two-dimensional. What does that mean? That means they're cliche. That means they're, you can expect what they're gonna do um, that means that the, ultimately what it means is that the audience is not engaged with the character and they don't care. And particularly for your hero and like I said before, your main characters, that is the death sentence for your, for your story. Can you have a good story, a good book, a good film without great characters yes but they really are the eyes and the ears of the audience so if you have lackluster characters it's going to be very difficult to pull it off and you're going to have to have some incredible aspects to to kind of uh what's the word to fill in the gaps that you're leaving with the characters contrastingly if you have characters that are that are deeply engaging that the audience cares about then they're going to allow a lot more mistakes narratively speaking because they care about the the characters and we can see that in several major films uh and the reason why i bring up major films is just because that's that's something that a modern audience the people that i'm speaking to everybody has gone and seen like star wars everybody has gone and seen avatar avengers 
Hunger Games, those kind of things, okay? So when you have a character that's deeply engaging, it's going to allow you, the two, I would say the two main things, when I, the theme is the most important because the theme is going to drive everything else in the story. But the, the way that the audience interacts with the theme is through the characters. So the characters really are that second fundamental element of your story. And of course, you need a solid plot for them to go through. But on, in, in terms of priority, characters are, I would say, number two. And the, the thing is, they can't, the audience, like I said before, cannot experience the theme or the plot unless they have a character that they care about. So let's, let's talk about that, okay? We know the problem. We've seen it in plenty of movies, TV shows, books. It's, it's a book or a TV show that you pick up or you start to watch and within the first 15 or 20 minutes you're like, all right, you lost me, I don't get it, I don't care. It's not that you, the, the story could have a great theme, it could have great action, but if the character isn't engaging, that's why you put it down, that's why you walk away. So let's talk about now the solution. The solution is that you want to create characters that reach the audience on a deep psychological level, okay? And as many of you know, if you've followed my YouTube channel, I'm a big proponent of the monomythic approach, AKA the hero's journey. And the reason why I am such a proponent of that is because all of the stories that have lasted the test of time, all of, all of our stories from antiquity follow the monomythic approach. So it would make sense that, and, and actually let me step back here for a second. Not only do those stories follow the monomythic approach, but many blockbusters that we see today in modern mythology follow the monomythic approach. So to me, that says when history and modern times match and we see that the, the stories and the characters are developed in the same way, that must be the thing that resonates with the human collective, the human psyche, okay? So this is, that's the reasoning why. Now you might be saying, okay, so I get, I get it, Josh. We're going to reach them on a psychological level. How do we do that? How can I do that? That's what you're asking. We use what we call archetypal application. We're going to apply archetypes to our characters. And before we get into that, what I want to do in these next few slides is discuss exactly what an archetype is. Because some of you may have never heard that word before. Some of you may have some misconceptions about what that word actually means. And some of you may be using it, using an archetype, let's say, incorrectly. So what I want to do is I want to kind of clear out all the misnomers, misunderstandings, let you know exactly what it is and exactly how to use it so that you can put some real psychological power behind your characters. All right, so here we go. First of all, what is an archetype? Here's a basic definition. A character that is instantly and widely recognized by their psychological significance in the story. Now I'm gonna pause here and say this, that I'm talking about this in the context of the monomyth approach, the modern monomythic approach, okay? And 
and I'm also saying this in terms of the of commercial fiction okay and let me let me see here yeah okay first let's talk about what an archetype is not it's not a stereotype it's not a set of characteristics and quirks it's not an outward appearance of a character which is essentially a stereotype and it's not a persona okay that is why on the previous slide i said i i I use the verbiage that I did. It's the way that the audience instantly recognizes a character through the psyche. Now let me explain this to you. I'm gonna use an analogy and then we'll kind of get into the nuts and bolts of this. In the car industry, they have archetypes. Now we call them something different, but essentially every vehicle there's a there's a different there's a different type, okay? Um, and the main archetypes I'm using air quotes right now when I say this uh, are a car, a truck, a van, an SUV. Maybe you could say a plane, a boat if you wanted to get a little bit like if you wanted to go beyond just uh, regular vehicles. In our mind, when we see those, we say, "Oh, that's a plane." and we see a, a very specific function, okay? But as we all know, there are several different makes, several different models of cars, trucks, vans, planes, helicopters, you name it, okay? And the problem is when writers write fiction, if we're gonna use that as an analogy, they're focusing more on the makes and models of the character rather than the actual archetype. And because of that, the, the audience get, gets a little lost and sometimes the writer gets lost as to who this person is and the function that they carry out in the story. And let me, I, I just wanna check this next slide here. Okay, yeah, before we go on there, I didn't create a slide for this, but I wanna, I wanna touch on this because this is kinda laying the foundation, the groundwork of this discussion. First of all, an archetype, because it reaches someone on a deep psychological level, it's different than a stereotype. A stereotype is something that we see as an outward superficial appearance and we automatically make assumptions based off of that. So for example, if you see a dude walking down the street with baggy pants, a long chain, a bunch of tattoos, you automatically get some sort of idea of who that person is. Contrastingly, if you saw the same dude walking down the street in a suit and a tie, wearing a Rolex and some really nice shoes, you get a completely different idea of who he is, his education, the way he speaks, and all of these things. Now, the interesting thing about that is that the first character that we just discussed, the guy with the chain, baggy pants, tattoos could be a good Samaritan that goes to church every Sunday, feeds the poor, and you know uh, donates to all different types of good causes. Whereas the second character that we talked about could have been a mob boss who has had many hits out on, I don't know, you know, individuals, murderers, right? It's, but we would never know that from their outward appearance, okay? A stereotype is not an archetype. 
most people understand this. But unfortunately, this is where we see a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This is where we see a lot of beginning writers kind of trip up. They go off of a stereotype and because of that, their character is very predictable and they have no depth sometimes and even to the point where they're cliche. Another thing that a, uh, a, an archetype is not is a set of characteristics and quirks. Just because you have a character that collects toenails, speaks in riddles, it doesn't actually talk to the depth of their character. It doesn't talk to the function of their character. And because of that, it's, it's like you're just painting on a wall in all different directions, not really knowing where you're going to go with the character. And that, that can lead you into disaster because what happens when you do this and you kind of go off of either a stereotype or, or characteristics and quirks is that you don't really know who your character is at the meat of the story or at the meat of the individual character. And because of this, one day you'll write them, uh, you know, in one light. Let's say one day you'll write them where they're, like I said before, that they, they collect their toenails. And yeah, that's like an interesting quirk. I know you're probably like, Josh, why are we talking about a character? <laughs> I don't know. It's the first thing that came in my mind. But it might grab the audience's attention. But if there's no real reason that they do that and they don't actually carry out a psychological function in the story as all monomythic characters do all monomythic archetypes then the character will end up falling flat because it has no real significance to the story or the hero uh, additionally an archetype for the purposes of this conversation and this conversation only is not a persona now you you all might be asking what is a persona a persona is a little bit closer to an archetype and it is psychologically based. So let me give you an example. The, the, uh, the Messiah archetype is a persona archetype and it's, this, it's a male archetype individual that it puts, like, puts like the fate of the world in front of their own uh, life like they, they, they'd be willing to sacrifice everything for that and it's it's seen through the way that they react and, and act in certain situations whereas an Amazon would be like a female persona that's very physical and very warrior like and we can see that in someone like Xena or even Katniss Everdeen has a Amazonian persona okay now here's the problem, or I don't want to say the problem because uh, the use of personas is great as a secondary level to a character. But here's the thing, it's not what drives them on the internal psychological sense, it's, it's the symptoms of who they are, it's not the actual like sickness of who they are, if that makes sense, okay? That's what a persona is, a persona, and even quirks and characteristics and a stereotype, they're all symptoms of who the person is on the inside, which is what we're trying to get to, because when you can figure that out about your character, then your audience can figure that out about their character, 
and that's when you start cooking with fire. Um, trying to think. So if you've ever taken like a, a personality quiz, and it, it, again, it's been a while, but like INJF, I think I was an INJF. I don't really remember, but like you take a, a personality quiz, it asks you a couple questions, like some of it is checking if you're extroverted or introverted, are you more of a leader, are you more of a follower? And at the end of the day, it'll give you this set of characteristics that is supposed to depict the, the type of person that you are. And this is very similar to a persona archetype, but again, they're, they're outward displays of a psychological mindset that the person has, but they are not the, the driving force. They're not the core of that individual. That would be the archetype. And I know I'm really sticking on this slide here, but I really want to get into this because this is very important. There are two main types of archetypes, close this here, in fiction when we're looking at it from a monomythic approach. There are role archetypes and there are stage archetypes, okay? So a role archetype is what role does that character take on in the, the narrative? And when I say narrative, I mean holistically. So if you have a trilogy going on and one character takes on the mentor role throughout the entire series, even though they may have acted as a herald at one point, or they acted maybe even as the shadow for a second or the trickster, they, their role archetype, their primary archetype is the mentor. A good example of this would be Obi-Wan Kenobi. And, and I'll touch on that in a second too. If, uh, contrastingly, throughout the plot, Throughout the stages of the hero's journey, the hero is going to go through different stages of maturation, okay? He's gonna go from his normal world where he still relies on his psychological flaw, then he's gonna go into the special world where he's gonna be tested and then eventually transformed by the psychological truth. Then in the third act, he's going to go in back into the normal world where he's going to use the psychological truth, hopefully, if it's a positive character arc, to overcome his psychological flaw and revitalize society. That is, that is like the, the basic uh, concept of the monomyth. So during those stages, and there's roughly in, in the, in the Joseph Campbell laid out 17 stages. In the modern monomyth, there's, I would say, 18 plus a couple extras, okay? We're not really gonna focus on that today, but through each stage, the hero is going to meet individual characters that represent certain archetypes. An example of this would be the dragon. At some point, the hero is going to enter the innermost cave, and which is like, uh, it's sort of like their dark spot. This is where they're gonna be tested very deeply on their, their psychological flaw. And it's gonna be reflected back to them through the character of the dragon. So for example, a, a perfect example of this is Smaug from The Hobbit. 
specifically if you've watched the films from the desolation of Smaug. Because what you have here is not only is it a literal dragon, but this dragon has what's called, uh, I think they call it in the, the story dragon's disease or something like that. He has this insatiable appetite to, to possess things, particularly gold, particularly power. And he even tells Bilbo when they're, when they're down in the Lonely Mountain, he tells Bilbo that he almost wants to give uh, Thorin Oakenshield the Arkenstone just so that it will corrupt him and he can see it. Because the dragon knows that Thorin has this, uh, what do you call it? Thorin has a, um, a, a character flaw. He has a psychological flaw, which is he is drawn to power. He has a chip on his shoulder. He wants to retake the land. He wants to retake the mountain so that he can restore the power of his people. And we see this play out later after Smaug is defeated. We see Thorin then take on those exact characteristics, the flaw. And Thorin, unfortunately, is a tragic hero that has a redemption line, but but it's a perfect example. That dragon is a stage archetype. It comes at a specific point in the story. If we look at Star Wars, this is uh, it happens very differently and for different reasons because the characters are different. But in Star Wars, the original trilogy, if we look at um, the first one, A New Hope, Luke, after Luke rescues Leia and the team gets, like, they, ha they have to escape the detention center, they go down into this trash compactor. And while they're down there, this little alien monster that lives under the water grabs him from below and pulls him underneath into the water. Now, this is actually a really great example of um, the water symbolically represents the subconscious. So when Luke is pulled down and for, for the, I don't know, minute or two that everybody thinks that Luke is dead, in, that, in those moments, it is the death of the old self. It is the death of the psychological flaw that's holding Luke back, which is essentially he's too dependent on other people and he doesn't trust in his own intuition. After that point, when he's released and then as he carries on the rest of the story, not only does he become the protagonist of the story, but he then has accepted the psychological truth that he is the one that has to start, he has to become independent. And it progressing, that truth becomes more and more progressive as the rest of the story plays out. Obi-Wan sacrifices himself to become one with the force. That means Luke can no longer, Luke and the team can no longer rely on Obi-Wan to help save them from Darth Vader or the Empire. Then, so from that point on, Luke becomes the main hero and ultimately he's the one that destroys the Death Star. And how does he destroy the Death Star? By putting away the targeting system and relying on the quote-unquote force, which is a symbolic representation of his intuition thus showing that he has accepted the psychological truth 
and overcome his flaw, which was dependence. So again, these are just some examples. Now, I, before we move from this slide, and I swear to goodness we're going to, the last thing I wanna talk about is uh, there are also literary archetypes. I haven't put this on here. We talked about stereotypes, quirks, personas, but there's also literary archetypes. And I'm, again, for the sake of this conversation, we're talking about how to create characters that resonate with your audience. But that doesn't mean that, that a literary archetype doesn't exist. There, there are protagonists, there are main characters, there are villains, there are antagonists, okay? Those are all literary archetypes and they're based on the function of the narrative. But there's no psychological connection there. Okay, and this is where a lot of people get mixed up about the difference between a hero, a main character, and a protagonist. And while we're on the topic, let me just drop some knowledge on you there. Okay, a uh, well, a main character is the character that the story is primary, the narrative is primarily told through. Okay, so um, for example, in The Hobbit, the main character is Bilbo Baggins. Okay. The protagonist, however, is the character that propels the story forward. The character who keeps, is the driving force of the story. And in that sense, ultimately it's Thorin. For in the, a little bit in the beginning, we could say that it's, uh, it's Gandalf, but uh, ultimately Thorin is the one who is the driving force trying to get the, the um, the dwarves back to the lonely mountain to take back what's rightfully theirs. At some points, you can see Bilbo take on the protagonist role, but ultimately, like he's the main character. He he's the eyes and the ears that we are seeing the story through. Whereas Thorin is the one that's driving everything in the plot forward and forward and then of course the antagonistic force is um, Sauron and the forces of evil and then the the villain we could say or the shadow figure is um, well villain in terms of literary devices is um, Azog the pale orc and I could go you know into tons of detail so now we've just talked about a, a main character and a protagonist, but then the question is, well, what is a hero? And aren't both Bilbo and Thorin heroes? A hero is someone who starts out with a psychological flaw, goes into the special world, learns things, retrieves the boon, which is has a psychological symbol, symbolism in it, and then returns the boon to restore society or to revitalize society. So in that sense, the answer is yes. Both Thorin and Bilbo are heroes. Now, interestingly enough, this brings me into my next point. There are usually two types of heroes or heroines in a story. And you have the, especially like in myth, you'll see this a lot. And in modern stories, you see this a lot. Uh, you have the everyman hero, which is someone who comes from very humble beginnings. They usually come from a poor or middle class background and they 
um, but they have some sort of special talent or skill that's going to help them in the story. Unfortunately, they also have a psychological flaw. The kingly hero, contrastingly, is someone that comes from higher class, like a royal bloodline or something like that. And um, their, their, their purpose or their driving force is to, it has something to relate to the kingdom or the community. And um, a lot of times kingly heroes will lose their power or, or like their political power, I guess you could say, not necessarily their physical power, and have to restore it. So again, if we take a look at Bilbo, he's an everyman. He comes from the Hob he comes from Hobbiton. He lives in the Shire. They're very simple people, and but his special skill is that people don't really pay attention to hobbits because people in Middle Earth because they're small and insignificant. And so that makes them the perfect type of burglar, which is what Thorin wants in order to sneak past the dragon. Thorin, on the other hand, is a kingly hero that comes from a royal bloodline that lost its uh, land primarily due to a psychological flaw. His grandfather, uh, again, was power hungry, just like we were discussing before with... with with Smaug and stuff that's all representative of this underlying theme that power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts ultimately and all these other things so hopefully that gives you an idea so there's a difference between literary archetypes and the archetypes we're talking about okay we're talking about psychological they're they're I immediately identified through psychological significance in the audience okay so now we, let's go to the next slide here are some classic archetype examples that you can see. You have the hero, the, the mentor, the shadow, the herald, the threshold guardians, the trickster, the ally, the goddess, the frog, the dragon, the foster parent, and the shapeshifter. Some of these are role archetypes, some are stage archetypes, some have dual purposes. And while we're on this topic, uh, I know I mentioned earlier that Obi-Wan uh, had like the primary role of mentor in, in Star Wars, but let's take that a step further. His primary archetype that he took on when acting thematically was, because the theme has everything to do with the psychology of the story, was mentor. However, whenever he acted Whenever he interacted with people non-thematically, his, his archetype was actually the trickster. And if you think about it, he doesn't tell Luke the complete truth about his father. He, when he comes upon Luke and, and Luke is being attacked by the sand people, he uses this crate dragon roar to scare them away, because, to make them think that there's this big monster there. And that's why the sand people run off. When they go into Moss Eisley, he uses a Jedi mind trick to, to trick the, the stormtroopers to let them go past. In, um, when they're in the Death Star, well, actually, it's, it's his idea to hide in the cargo bay of the Millennium Falcon when they get, the, when the tractor beam from the Death Star sucks them in. 
it's his idea to go and turn off the tractor beam. And while he's doing that, he uses like this force push thing to trick the stormtroopers into leaving their posts so that he can shut down the tractor beam. All of this just goes to show that while a person can have a primary archetype, that archetype that they take on for the story uh, is, is how they interact with the theme. Their secondary archetype can be uh, more related to their, their personality, how they interact non-thematically. And again, that's where I do believe that persona archetypes could be used to great extent. And if you want really good books on that, um, you can look up an author called Victoria Lynn Schmidt. She's written two or three books on, on persona archetypes that are very, very good. So hopefully this kind of clears things up. I want you guys to have a very, very clear understanding of what's going on here as we go forward. Uh, so here we go. The two key character archetypes in your story is going to be the hero, or which is the male version of the, the, the hero, or the heroine, which is the female version. And then... You can all, then there's the shadow. In most cases, the shadow takes on the antagonistic role in the story. So again, if we look at um, literary archetypes, the antagonist is, is the one that's trying to block the protagonist from achieving their goal. That's essentially what they're doing. The shadow, nine times out of 10, is going to be this person. The shadow represents repressed desires, emotions and behaviors that the hero or heroine won't take part of okay so again for Bilbo the the shadow figure is actually excuse me it's um, Gollum and so throughout uh, in the in the middle of the Hobbit we see him interact with Gollum during, during kind of his cave moment where he is overcoming his flaw. And Gollum is a perfect representation of what Bilbo would be if he gave into the desires of the ring, the evil of the one ring. And the same thing could be said about Frodo in the, in the Lord of the Rings. It, it's, it's Gollum, yet again. For if, if we go back to the Hobbit, the shadow figure for Thorin is Azog, the Pale Orc. And it's very interesting that it's the Pale Orc because um, white represents death and more, like, I don't want to say more importantly, but like if we were to look at um, uh, Moby Dick by Herman Melville, it's the giant white whale is the shadow figure for uh, for Captain Ahab, okay? It's this creature that he's, he's like, like obsessed with destroying. And it's the same thing with Thorin. Like, he's obsessed that um, Azog is still alive. And ultimately, it ends up killing him. Uh, but through his sacrifice, he is also redeemed. So he's both a tragic and redemptive hero. We see the same thing in Star Wars, where you have Darth Vader is the shadow figure to 
Luke Skywalker. He's also his father. So there's a lot of psychological underlying things going on there. More importantly, later in the, the preceding films, uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader is a hero in his own right. And we start to see his journey, his redemptive journey, from being a tragic hero who lost his wife, lost his limbs, lost his ranking with the Jedi, lost his children, to a redemptive hero who came back to the light and ultimately helped restore the society, the galactic society, by killing the, by destroying the Emperor. So, um, so these two characters are essentially throughout the whole story going to be doing a, a tug of war match um, with the boon or the psychological theme of the story and so the, the, the problem that we see with a lot of villains is, and this is why I like the term shadow is that villains a lot of times are portrayed as just like straight up evil they have no goodness in them but if you can put goodness in your in your shadow character because that it's it's going to help the hero relate to that character and sometimes even allow temptation as we see with like Darth Vader um but it's also it's going to allow the audience to relate with them because they're not just some monster they they're a person behind there and a lot of times the thing that differentiates the hero from the shadow is, a, is just the, the intention behind what they're doing. And um, it, it's, so, it's such a thin line that the shadow, they may, they may actually believe in what they're doing and they're doing it for quote unquote the right reasons. Maybe the hero and the shadow are both trying to save the galaxy. Actually, this is a, like if we look at Luke and Darth Vader, it's a perfect example. He wants to save the galaxy by freeing it and giving the control back to the people, Vader, who was once Anakin, believed that the only way to save the galaxy was to control it. So it's it's merely in the way they go about doing it, but they both essentially want the same thing. So um, again, when we talk about stereotypes, when it comes to the shadow, a lot of times, um, Writers will write the shadow or, or what they believe to be the villain or the antagonist. They'll write them so evil that it's almost unrealistic. Okay? Like, you need someone that's, that has some saving grace that's going to allow the audience to still resonate with that character. Alright, so the hero and the heroine, they represent the ego. Now, why is that important? Um, it's because, well, we'll get to that in a second. They represent the ego. The hero or the heroine has to have a major flaw that's holding them back. So just like I said a second ago, the shadow should have a saving grace. The hero can't be perfect. If you make them too perfect, then uh, they're not believable as well. And as a matter of fact, if you can make this flaw, uh, if you can make this flaw something that the, the audience is struggling with. This is where you really need to evaluate who are you writing your book for? Who's going to receive the most value from your book? And what kind of flaw 
do they have that's holding them back from reaching their full potential? If you can identify that and, and, and then put it in the hero or heroine, now you've got a story that people are gonna care about because they're gonna see somebody that they can relate with that is struggling with the same psychological flaw that they have. And they may, that nine times out of 10, they won't even understand that that's going on. It's all gonna happen subconsciously. And that's the way you want it to happen. You want it to be so seamless that they're so engaged in the story, they don't even realize that you just put a reflection, a mirror up to their face and they can see the reflection in the hero or heroine. Now this person, as I said before, they leave the normal world to the unknown world. They find the boon in the unknown world and then they return it to the normal world and must overcome their flaw in order to restore society. Here is the Star Wars heroes example. We've discussed it already a little. In the beginning, Luke is a young man that is overly dependent on his uncle and aunt. He leaves his normal world of Tatooine, then rescues Princess Leia. He gives the Death Star plans to the Alliance, allowing the rebels to mount a counterattack. Then finally, he relies on his intuition to destroy the, the ultimate weapon, the Death Star, and save the galaxy. Here are some other hero examples from other stories that are well known. Katniss Everdeen from Hunger Games. Harry Potter from Harry Potter uh, series. Ripley from Aliens. Particularly Aliens 2. Um, in some ways you could, you could make a case for the other ones, but Aliens 2, or Aliens, is, uh, in my opinion, the one that follows the monomythic approach the best, and it's also the one that has been the, the best, the most well-received. Uh, Shepard from Mass Effect, I'm talking about the original three Mass Effects, not, not the most recent. Peter Parker from Spider-Man Homecoming. And Hot Rod from the 1980s Transformers movie. Frodo and Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. Again, if we look at Frodo, he is the everyman hero, and Aragorn is the kingly hero. All right, so here are some action items. One, maybe you need to sit down and ask yourself, who is your hero? Now that we've talked about the difference between, now that you know, well, one, now that you know what an archetype is, you know what an archetype isn't, and you know the difference between uh, a hero, a main character and a protagonist, now you might be saying, okay, my hero is actually not who I thought it was. Okay, so go ahead and give yourself a second and really think about who is the person that is your hero. And in some stories, you might have two. You might have the everyman hero and the kingly hero, okay? Um, how do they represent the hero in the mundane world? Uh, I'm sorry, how do they represent the reader in their mundane world? Again, this is getting back to their flaw. Um, if the more you can make the hero or heroine uh, resemble the target audience, the better. And this, and the hero is the one character, I guess you could say, that that you can play off of stereotypes and demographics a little bit more, but they have to be reflective of the audience. Everyone else in the story, uh, you're going to want to form 
their archetype based off of wh who your hero is. So um, I'll give you an example. If you have an elderly hero because your target audience is uh, elderly, and then they're probably struggling with uh, you know being relevant with time and with the new modern times and technology, which has been done in in several stories. Then the mentor for an elderly hero is usually a younger individual. A perfect example of this is the movie Up. You have Mr. Gustafson who's kind of out of touch with reality. He's mourning the loss of his wife, Ellie, and he's lost all sense of adventure. His mentor ends up being uh, Russ, which is like basically this Boy Scout who has tons of uh, uh, enthusiasm and a sense of adventure, which eventually the two help balance each other out. Um, let's see. How will they depict the theme through the inner journey? So again, uh, we're not really talking about theme today, but the theme is usually a psychological lesson that is played out throughout the, both the inner and outer journey. And as I said before, the hero, when they take on that psychological flaw that you believe the audience is struggling with, that's preventing them from reaching their fullest potential, if you can depict that with the hero and then through the journey show them evolve or if it's a tragic hero devolve then then you're then that's what you're aiming for now let's talk about the shadow in a little bit more detail the shadow can be also male or female just like uh before you can have a hero or a heroine you can have a male or female shadow normally they are the same gender as the hero this isn't always the case. Sometimes uh, you can have it opposite, but it, in, in most cases, if your target audience is, say, women, or um, I, I don't know, it would be going into too much depth to really, like going beyond the scope of this conversation. But let's just put it this way. You can have it different genders, but nine times out of 10, it'll be the same gender as your hero. And, and again, it's because that's the shadow of the hero. It's the reflection of the hero. They're gonna represent repressed ambitions, emotions, and behavior of the ego. All the things that the ego has considered but won't do because it's socially incorrect, it's not right, maybe they, maybe they want to be more aggressive, maybe they want to be more erotic or something, okay? Um, this is who that and, and many times the antagonistic force will take almost an extreme position against what the hero believes so in most stories the hero starts out kind of in this middle grayish area they do what's morally and socially acceptable but they could be swayed kind of either way they're not really a paragon. They're not really an anti-hero or a renegade. They're what we would call an iconic hero because they're iconic of the society that they live in. But the shadow, on the other hand, is way... Like, they do things usually... Like I said before, if you've created a good shadow, they're doing it for, for 
almost similar reasons as the hero. They want to save society, they want to be good, but they do it in such a way that it's purposefully hurting other people. Many times a shadow, their, their argument will be you have to break a couple eggs to make an omelet. <coughs> and we can see that with Darth Vader. Darth Vader is a pretty good example of someone who uh, really started out wanting to help society, but went down a very uh, like per perverse or absurd path to do it because, again, he was manipulated by uh, you know even darker forces, and and we see that a lot. The shadow isn't usually the uh, mastermind behind the antagonistic force they're just usually the enforcer of the antagonistic force they're the main lieutenant so to speak <clears throat> all right in the thematic sorry so and the shadow is also in thematic contradisposition to the lesson and represents the extreme version of the flaw that's essentially what we just talked about whatever we're trying to teach the audience through the theme the the shadow is going to represent not just the opposite of that but the extreme opposite of that and again if we look at vader um the 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 theme is to trust your own intuition on a individual level and um, not be so dependent and on the societal theme is don't allow the government, don't be so dependent on the government that they take so much power that they, they have all ultimate control, complete control, okay? Vader represents that in two ways. He's a cyborg, okay? He's half man, half machine because he, you know, in previous narratives, <coughs> he was essentially almost killed and now he's reliant on machines in order to live. So that, so on that level alone, he represents, on an individual level, he represents dependence on a system. And then when we look at it from the societal theme, he represents the government. He is the enforcer of this government that is tyrannical, that's out of control, that has just um, absolved the Senate, okay? So again, that is a perfect example of how the shadow is the extreme opposite of what the lesson that you want the audience to learn. All right, now here we go. I, this may be uh, re repetitive here a bit, my bad. Uh, here's a Star Wars shadow example. Darth Vader is a Sith Lord cyborg and the main executor of the Empire. He intends to kill the princess and destroy the rebellion thus allowing the tyrannical government to dominate society. So all the stuff that we, we just spoke about. <coughs> Here are some other shadow examples. Cato from The Hunger Games. Voldemort from Harry Potter. The Queen Alien from Aliens. Saren from Mass Effect. Vulture from Spider-Man Homecoming. Galvatron from Transformers the Movie. And Sauron from Lord of the Rings. If we look at the Hobbit, as I said before, it would be Azog, the white orc. Okay, so here are your action items when it comes to the shadow. <coughs> Who is your shadow? 
Now that I've explained what that archetype is, who is it in your story? Have you identified it? Maybe it's not the antagonist, uh, again, because the antagonist is someone a lot of times who is uh, uh, the driving force to stop the protagonist. They're, they're trying to put blockades in the way. The shadow is usually the main enforcer of that individual. How can they represent the extreme opposite of the thematic lesson? If you've considered what your thematic lesson is, if you've considered the flaw that your hero has and the psychological truth they're gonna to learn to overcome that flaw, just now <coughs> reverse it and think backwards. How does the shadow represent the extreme opposite of that? And then what is their saving grace? Why did they go down this path? What is it about them that they're, they're trying to do that makes them, that some people would agree with them. If they were in a political debate, they would have some standing to, to hold on to. Again, if we look at Anakin, uh, maybe not poorly, maybe not executed well narratively, but if we look at the prequels, Anakin explains in several different spots in the prequels why he kind of believes the way that he does. He's this Jedi, he's out there, he's trying to save people but the politicians won't make up their minds and it, it causes all of this bureaucratic mess and then the Jedi have to go and clean it up so in Anakin's mind he's like why don't one or two people who have have the power just tell everybody what to do and some people would agree with that and we know this for a fact because if we look throughout history there have been tyrannical governments there have been uh, uh, Monarchies, you know, like it's not some unheard of thing. So, uh, what makes the shadow a hero in their own mind? And that goes along with their saving grace. In their own mind, the shadow has to believe that they're a hero. And actually, in some stories, the shadow will become a hero, especially if you have sequels. As I said before, Darth Vader became a redemptive hero. Uh, starting an empire and then going to Return of the Jedi. If you look at the, the Vampire Chronicles, in the first story, Interview with the Vampire, Lestat is the shadow, and he is a bad guy. And, and nobody likes him. Lewis paints him as this really bad guy. And then in the second book, Lestat, in all the, f the future books, Lestat is actually the hero. He's kind of an anti-hero, but nonetheless, he's doing things to help people. So um, shadows in their own right believe that they are a hero and they're fighting for some sort of cause. So that, that's the thing. Their saving grace should be the cause and that's why they believe they are a hero in their own mind. And then is there a reciprocal lesson learned? This is actually something important. At the end, in the climactic moment of the story, uh, you can have what's called a reciprocal lesson, which means that not only does the shadow learn that they were wrong, but the hero also learns that they were wrong as well. So both, in a sense, both people had a point to what they were doing. And this is a very powerful way to storytell because in a sense, you're, you're showing that there is no perfect solution to the problem. You're showing that while there's a preferred method, 
or maybe a preferred intention or, or way to go about things that there is no perfect way or that there is, that there is some, um, there is some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <clears throat> oh gosh. Credence to the other side's argument. Okay. That's what uh, the reciprocal lesson is. That's a more advanced tactic. We're not going to go in it today, but it's something to consider. If there's something that both sides can learn in the climactic moment from each other, that would be a very good way to give your story balanced so it does not seem as though it's uh, self-indulgent. <coughs> Again, these archetypes will give your story psychological power to reach the audience. If you can reach your audience on a psychological level, on a subconscious level, they will be engaged, they will care about the story, they will care about your characters, they will empathize, and ultimately they will read it and they will keep coming back to it. This is why it's so important to use archetypes. And I believe that is the last slide here. I'm gonna exit out of the slides now. And uh, just to finish up, I just wanna remind you guys, uh, everybody who's watching this, if you haven't been the Story Ninjas, go ahead and check us out, go ahead and subscribe. You can get on our newsletter that will you know, send out updates, kinda let everybody know what's going on. We have <coughs> a couple courses right now, we're gonna be amping those up. We're gonna also be providing more tools for both fiction and nonfiction writers. And uh, these are all the services here that we offer. If you have any questions on any of these, feel free to ask us. And then of course there are our, our fiction and nonfiction books. And again, you can visit us at www.story-ninjas.com or you can give us a call at 561-510-6430. The last thing I wanna do is put out a plug here for a book that I just published like two days ago called The Iconic Hero's Journey, How to Write the Classic Hero Archetype. It's book one in modern monomyth archetypes. And in this, I go into great detail. It's about 160 something pages worth of how to write your hero, which is by far the most important character of your story. <coughs> and we talk about how it was done in mythology, in various mythology, uh, we give, I give a lot of examples, and then also how it's done in modern mythology in blockbusters that follow the, myth, the mythological approach, the monomyth approach. And just to give you an idea of some of the things we'll discuss in that, uh, I go into the truth about commercial fiction, how to write an iconic hero even if you've never written fiction before, the definition and basic explanation of archetypes. We kind of discussed that today. Um, let's see, some other ones that maybe, uh, why you should never have a perfect hero. We, we kind of discussed that today too. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, the tools, weapons, fighting styles, and the, the tools, weapons, and fighting styles that most iconic heroes use in fiction, as well as their conflict resolution uh, approaches 
let's see, um, and how to create the relationship between the inner journey and the outer journey. There's a whole bunch on here. I've got over 40 end of chapter steps that you'll be able to implement in your story immediately to beef up your hero. And the, the best thing about this is not only will you learn about, uh, you know, the mono, the hero's journey, the monomyth, the inner journey, how to write the, the hero character, but you're gonna learn about myth. You're gonna learn about how myth is being used in modern storytelling to create very powerful stories. I think, I think it's very important. And then again, um, you can always check me out on Amazon. If you look up Josh Coker, you'll see all of my different books here. They Okay, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully that had a ton of information that can help you along your journey to help you reach your fullest potential. If you haven't already, go ahead and like it. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe so you can get more content like this. I'm going to be pushing these out as much as I can. And if you have any questions, concerns, comments, maybe there's something I didn't touch on. Maybe you want me to go in a little bit more detail. Go ahead and send them in so that we can continue this conversation and keep it alive. If you know somebody that might be able to benefit from this and they're not following yet or they don't know about it, go ahead and share this with them. And um, for those of you, since the podcast is still new, if you're looking for more material, check me out on YouTube at Josh Coker. And there's a ton of stuff on polymathics and all the things that I talk about at Josh Coker. I'm also on all the other social medias, usually either at Josh Coker or um, Josh Miss Prime, just like Optimus Prime, except Josh Miss. So J-O-S-H-U-M-U-S-P-R-I-M-E. And that's for like Snapchat and Instagram and things like that. If you want to write a book or you have a story to tell and share with the world and you would like our help in developing that story, go ahead and check us out at Story Ninjas, www.story-ninjas.com. And we will help you turn your dream into a reality. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, this has been Josh Coker on behalf of Polymathics, the blog that helps you become a modern-day renaissance man, and reach your fullest potential. I will catch you guys in the next episode.